0: Thank you for listening to a sermon from the District Church. For more information about us, please visit www.thedistrict.church. Additionally, if any of our sermons have brought encouragement to you, would you please let us know by emailing us at infothedistrict.church? Uh, and I want to start this morning off by just asking a question um, and kind of get a, uh, a show of hands um, if you would agree with this question or not. But how many of you think that, that you are totally free? just free just totally free anyone all right it's kind of a twi- trick trick question um, mainly because th- th- there's the idea of yes spiritually in Christ we we have total freedom as far as the choices that we make on a daily basis like do i want to go to McDonald's or do i want to go to uh, Taco Bell, like because my body is a temple and i want to steward it, and so I'm going to choose one of those two. Like, like which one do I go to? Yes, I have the total freedom to choose that in this American society that we live in, but if I want to walk into that Taco Bell and just take the food without paying for it, do I have the freedom to be able to do that? No, I don't. Because there's going to be consequences if I do that. So the idea of, of having total freedom um, is false within any society that you were to walk into across the entire world. Um, because to, to not have any type of governing entity or any type of law um, or just anything, to not have that would be complete and total anarchy and chaos. And so there has to be something. I mean, even our nature and creation has laws that we kind of abide by. Like, I, I can't just right now float. Because there's the law of gravity. There's the law of gravity that's governing me. Now, if I did, that'd be really cool if I could do that. But, but I can't just do that. Like, I can't walk over and just say, I'm going to decide to just push this wall over, and that wall is just going to fall down. Actually, I actually had a guy in one of my churches um, that I was on staff at for about seven years uh, that came up to me, like, following a service, came up to me and said, you know what? I think if you believe in yourself enough, I could just push that wall down, and I knew immediately I was going to like this guy. Um, but like, th- there's this I, like we we can't do that. Like, there's there's laws that 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 bind us um, that are governing us, and and I want to share a couple with you um, that are through a couple different states and a couple of different countries that I found this week that I thought were very interesting. Um, in Florida. And I'm not trying to pick on them for what's going on down there right now, but um, I did live there for a couple of years, so I was a citizen there for a while, so I can at least say this. Um, but anyways, in Florida, it's illegal to parachute on a Sunday if you're an unmarried woman. That's a law that's actually on their books. Now, I don't know how much they enforce that or not, and I love the specificity of it. Like you literally, you, you can parachute. Um, you can parachute if you're a woman. You can parachute if you're an unmarried woman, just not on a Sunday. Um, That's happening there. In Vermont, a wife needs her husband's permission to wear false teeth. This is true, guys. Like, I'm sure that one's going to be granted at all times. Um, We like women with teeth, but um, that's in Vermont. Like, that's true. That is an actual um, law there. In England, it is illegal to die in the House of Parliament. So like, if you're there and you like have a cough, they're probably going to try to get you out lest you die on the inside and break the law at the same time. I don't know how they're going to prosecute you at that point, um, but it's illegal to actually die in the House of Parliament. In Alabama, and I'm sure there's a lot more, um, and probably a good story to this one, but it's illegal to wrestle bears in Alabama. This is true. Uh, in China, if you are a Buddhist monk... It's illegal to reincarnate without the government's permission. Like, these are laws that are actually on the books that govern people. Um, And and so, the thing that I want to talk about today, the reason why I bring these up is because we are all governed by laws. Um, But to which laws are we ultimately governed by? because like right now if i were to get in my truck and start driving south and someone were to pull me over and say hey i see that you're heading south are you planning on wrestling any bears today like i'm going to think they're absolutely crazy like no like we should not have to like worry about that and so yes i'm governed by the laws of the US and then i'm also governed by the laws of Indiana because that's where i'm a citizen right now but when we're looking at life all together Um, There are specific things that, that govern us, but even more than that, there are things that govern literally every aspect of our life for those who consider themselves to be believers, to be Christians, and it's the Word of God. As we're walking through this Believe series, today is where we're talking about the Scriptures. We're talking about the 66 books of the Bible, the 39 books of the Old Testament, the 27 books of the New Testament. Why do we adhere to these books of the Bible? Why do we trust them in order for those books to govern our lives as God's revealed Word to us? Because as believers, as Christians, what we're saying is we believe that God is the ultimate sovereign, that he is in control of all things, that he is overseeing all things, and that he is making provision for our lives in order for us to flourish. So basically, he doesn't want us to suffer in the sense of of, of lacking any joy that is to be had when following and trusting his ways. For example, with my son Ezra, we want Ezra to flourish. Well, right now, Ezra does not know the best ways in which to make right choices. For example, if we were to open up our back door and just let him run free, there's a pond over to the right of our house that Ezra would love to just run straight into, but he doesn't know how to swim. He doesn't even know that he doesn't know how to swim. He's going to just run straight into the water and just see what happens. Or the street. He wants to just run out into the street because he thinks it's fun to just run out into the street. And what I have to do is kind of come next to him and say, Ezra, do you see that flat squirrel? Do you want to become like that flat squirrel? This is why daddy has a law in which we want you to stay in the yard because I want you to flourish. I want you to live. This is why we put a fence up in our backyard so that we could open up the door and have some boundaries for him to stay within what's safe. And this is what we as believers say when we trust in Jesus Christ. What we're saying is the 66 books of Scripture that are considered the revealed Word of God, we're saying these are the boundaries in which God has designed for us to flourish. And so we therefore trust them and we want them to govern our lives so that we're led into joy and not into destruction. And so the main thing that I'm wanting to talk to you about today um, is specifically why the 66 books? Why the Bible that we trust, that we believe? Why is it the revealed word of God and not 67 books, not 65 books? Why why are there others that are left out? And so as you have your Bibles, um, go ahead and open up to the book of Hezekiah. Is it not there? Yeah, there is no book of Hezekiah. What about the Gospel of Mary? We've got Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Mary, right? Why not the Gospel of Mary? It's a legit book. What about 4QMMT of the Dead Sea Scrolls? Why is that one not in there? What about the Gospel of Thomas or the Gospel of Philip? What about the Assumption of Moses? Why not these historical books that were written around the same time, why are those not considered to be in our Bible? And so we're going to look at that today, why these specific 66 books. But before we do, I want to read our statement of faith as a church around what we believe the Scriptures are. And here's what our statement of faith is. It says, We accept the Bible including the 39 books of the Old Testament and the 27 books of the New Testament as the written word of God, leading us to salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Being given and inspired by God, the scriptures are an essential and infallible record of God's revelation to mankind. Therefore, as originally given, each book is to be interpreted according to its context and purpose as the Lord speaks through it. We are called to hunger and thirst for righteousness found in Jesus according to the scriptures, which are breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. That's our statement of faith as a church. And so now I want to lead into... um, why that statement of faith focuses so much on the 39 and the 27. Um, So I want to first start off with just kind of sharing with you uh, how those books came about how we ended up with the 66. And this is what's called the canon of Scripture. When you hear canon, don't think Civil War canon. Like this isn't, you know, they just threw a bunch of books in and just shot them out. and Whichever ones landed were the ones that were there. Like that's not the idea of canon. Canon is a Greek term, kanon, uh, which means a standard or a measuring stick. It's a ruler. And so what the early church was looking at when they referred to the canon of Scripture is what is the measuring stick by which God is using to govern his church, his people, the adopted people in who have accepted and trusted the gospel of Jesus Christ? How is God going to lead and direct them through his revealed word, which is ultimately revealing who he is? And this is important because the scriptures are the ones who testify to be the only means by which God reveals himself to us inerrantly. And the reason why I mentioned the fact that it's inerrant, which is another way of just saying that they are without error, um, is because we need something that we can absolutely trust versus something that we could kind of sort of trust because it sounded like it was a good idea. And the reason why I say that is, is sometimes you might have a friend um, or you might read an article or you might hear somebody who had a good word for you that they shared with you about who God was and you received that and when you received that, it, it, it felt like it was the right thing to do. For example, if I were to tell you, um, hey man, I, I think you should fast for three months. I think you should fast for three months. That's, that's my wisdom to you. That's my direction to you. That's I, I want you to trust in the Lord. I want you to experience more of the Lord. I want you to experience more of Christ and see Him. I want you to kind of not have any distractions, so I think you should fast for three months. Well, my intention may be pure. My intentions may be honorable. My intentions may be for you to flourish and to see more of Christ, fasting is a biblical thing, and so I'm being biblical when it comes to that, but the application's a little off, right? Have any of you tried to fast for three months? Not drinking any food or water for three months? You'll be dead in about 10 days. So my application of that food and water, if it's just food, you can go longer, but not including water as well, you're dead in about 10 days. So although everything might be intentional good, my application of it is not authoritative. It's not ultimate. That's why we need a standard. We need a written, revealed word of God that we're always, as a church, as a body of Christ, as believers, we're coming back to and saying, This is the ultimate authority that I am trusting in my relationship with God as He is leading me and directing me. It does not mean that there can never be good advice that comes from friends and that comes from churches and that comes from sermons and that comes from articles and that comes from books that are written about the scriptures. Absolutely, those things can point us to Christ and direct us to him, but they better be channeled and filtered through the word of God because this is the primary way in which God reveals and directs his people is through his God-breathed word. Because it's easy for us to, at times, just get ourselves off with, with our own thoughts and opinions and so forth. So I want to show you why we have 39 books of the Old Testament and the 27 of the New Testament that we call sacred literature. Um, Another reason why I want to show you this is because um, it's, well, for example, like the other day I was was sitting on the couch drinking root beer and eating cereal because, again, my body's a temple, and... I was watching the History Channel, um, and I know I mentioned a couple weeks ago, you should, you know, don't trust everything you see on the History Channel. Um, but it's true. Don't trust everything you see on the History Channel. There was literally, they were promoting a show coming up where it was uh, the, the the Jesus Strand, a search for Jesus' DNA. Um, and I'm just thinking, like, what else are they going to come up with in order to sell Jesus um, and to get people kind of sucked into this thing? Because I'm thinking... Jesus' body's not in the grave. It rose. He ascended. There's nothing left there. So where are they going to find DNA? I mean, the show's never going to end because they're constantly going to be searching for it. And then like right after that, then they also had this other side of it that was um, talking about a new gospel or a new truth that was revealed. And that's kind of going to be the next season. And I'm just thinking like like, there's so many times where we get so sucked into a new revelation or a new article that was found or or a new scroll that was discovered. I'm going to talk about the Dead Sea Scrolls here in a little bit. But we get so sucked into something new that we actually miss out or get distracted by what's already ultimate authority and should not have anything else added to it. Because it is uh, in itself sufficient for God to be revealed to us and not only for God to be revealed to us, but for us to also then walk in everything that we need to understand how God wants us to walk. How God wants us to live he doesn't leave anything out for like God is not a God of confusion God is not a, a God of wanting us to just guess all the time and just figure it out like when he says love your spouse that does not mean that he's then going to just leave us with trying to figure it out on our own there's specific ways in which he leads us in how we are to love our spouse Now, there's ways in which we contextualize that now. I mean, like when he tells them to love their spouse in the first century, that doesn't mean that he was also instructing them uh, to go to Morton's Steakhouse and have a nice steak. Like they they couldn't do that in first century because it didn't exist. At least as far as I know. Maybe it did, Tim. I don't know. Maybe they they were around during that time. So there's ways in which we can contextualize that, but the principles themselves are enough and sufficient for us to be able to live in the way that God wants us to live for our joy and for His glory. So, jumping in to the 39 books. The thing I want to mention first off in jumping into these 39 books of the Old Testament is that God reveals His Word to us progressively. Progressively. I don't mean progressive in the liberal sense of the word progressive. I mean he reveals his word to us over a span of time, over history. This is the reason why when God is talking with Adam and Eve in the garden, he's not instructing them on baptism. There's no need for baptism. There's no need for the understanding of that. He's not going to Adam and Eve and saying, here's how you appoint deacons. They're like, what are deacons? Like, he's like, okay, well, that's, it's a couple thousand years away, so don't worry about it. Like He's not having to instruct them on those specific things, but rather is revealing his word to them and speaking to them progressively over a span of history. This is why the recorded scriptures that we have, the 39 books and the 27 books, are written over a span of about 2,000 years from 1500 BC up into the first century. These are the recorded scriptures that we have. It wasn't just a couple of guys who got down in kind of a cohort of people around a table and started a little writing group and said, okay, let's just write it all down right now and here's the book and here we go. It's a library of books that span over 1,500 years. We first see God speaking in the Old Testament primarily just from himself. At times speaking audibly, at times speaking in visions, at times speaking through burning bushes, at times literally just writing it down himself as he was the one who specifically etched the Ten Commandments and provided them to Moses. God spoke himself. Other times it's through his prophets like Isaiah or Jeremiah or Daniel. Other times it's through, um, uh, through authoritative leaders like David or Solomon or Moses. So God reveals himself to his people. And it's not through guys who just profess to be prophets. Like you realize, like during the time of the prophets, there, were, there, there was not like an application process in which guys were, were desiring to become prophets because if you got it wrong just a little bit, you're killed for it. Like there, there, there was no desire, there, there was no lining up around the corner in order to become the next prophet. But rather God appoints prophets, called people out in order to prophesy and speak his word. The ones who would say, thus says the Lord of the Old Testament. And then at the... At the end of the prophets, at the end of the wisdom literatures, you then have this silence. Right around 435 B.C., you have the Old Testament scriptures the Jews would adhere to and affirm that they would cease at that point. That God speaking to his people ceased at that point in which they closed the 39 books of the Old Testament. And then you have about 435 years of silence before this weird guy shows up on the stage, John the Baptist, and begins preparing the way for Jesus, sent as a prophet to prepare the way. Behold, the Lamb of God is coming to take away the sins of the world. This is him breaking the silence and coming in to the scene and recognizing that Jesus the Messiah, that the 39 books of the Old Testament have been pointing to and leading to and talking about for the last 1,500 years, last 2,000 years, this guy is finally here, so don't miss him. And then the reason why I wanted to jump to this point to give affirmation for the 39 books of the Old Testament is because who better to give affirmation for those 39 books, whether or not we should trust them as literature, as sacred, holy scripture literature, than Jesus Christ himself. If we're in this room and we say we trust Jesus as God, then I'm going to go with what Jesus says when he references the Old Testament. This is what he says in Luke 24, 44. Jesus says, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Whenever first century Jews would talk about the Old Testament law, whenever they would talk about the original 39 books, they always referenced them in three categories, the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. And that's the way the Old Testament is actually broken down. It's broken down into the law, the first five books... Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And then it's broken down into the prophets, the major prophets and the minor prophets. It's not necessarily that it's, it's major prophets are, are higher in status and minor are lower. It's just length of book. The major prophets are longer books and the minor prophets are shorter books. And then it leads into the wisdom literatures, the Psalms, the Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. Um, you lead into the poetry letters that we have. And so he literally refers to this. This is a Jewish way of referring to the whole Old Testament by grouping them into these three categories. And so what Jesus is doing right here in this moment is saying all of God's word, including the law, including the prophets, and including um, the wisdom literatures, the Psalms, are meant to be fulfilled by me arriving on the scene. He's recognizing The 39 books as God's inspired, breathed out word. Holy scriptures. That he goes on to say later that not even an iota should be removed. Not even a dot should be removed. Every single word that is within the Old Testament is absolute truth and is to be governed over the people of God we got the 400 years of silence, and then John the Baptist shows up speaking the Word of God. From there, it then starts rolling into the New Testament realm. And the New Testament realm is, is definitely um, more difficult when it comes to humans trusting that these are written, inspired words of God, um, just because it now also involves... A church, a body of people recognizing which books are in and which books are out. But I want to show you um, how they ultimately establish this. First Timothy five, eighteen, this is Paul uh, writing a letter to his disciple Timothy, and he says, For the scripture says, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Isn't that just one of y'all's like favorite verses out there? Um, like I know you got like the coffee cup mug, like you've got that on a T-shirt or something. Like when you're in a hard day, it's just like, uh, what's that Deuteronomy verse? Like, muzzle and ox, yeah. When it trades out the grain, yeah. Okay, I'm good to go now today. Um, but that's a verse from the book of Deuteronomy that Paul is referencing as what the scripture says. And then he goes on to another one, and the laborer deserves his wages. Now, Paul, again, is referring to the way the Scripture says, and he says the laborer deserves his wages, putting it in the same category of Scripture. But where does that verse come from? It doesn't come from the Old Testament. It comes from the Gospel of Luke. So you have Paul, an apostle, called by God, appointed by God, referencing a book of the New Testament as authoritative Scripture. 2 Peter 3.16 says this, um, and this is in the context when Peter's uh, talking about false teachers who twist Paul's words because they're hard to understand. Um, I think we can all attest to that, that Paul's words at times are hard to understand as we're reading through them. Uh, Just read Ephesians chapter 1 and see if you can understand all of it. But here's what he says in 2 Peter 3.16 and count the patience, I'm backing up in verse 15 as well, and count the patience of the Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him. Again, this was wisdom given to Paul when Paul met Jesus. This wasn't something that Paul just kind of thought up himself, but rather this was Jesus inspiring it to Paul, providing it to him in order for him to be able to understand and write these things. So this is wisdom given him as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. What Peter has just said is the writings of Paul are being considered as other scriptures. He's saying people are trying to twist Paul's word just like they're trying to twist words from the Old Testament, words written from other apostles as well, as well as the words here. It's the same word, graphe, that's used there in the Greek to refer to any other form of Scripture that's within the verses. So let me give you some criteria. Those are just a few examples from the way the New Testament references the New Testament as scriptures, just like the Old Testament. Let me give you some criteria. This is basically how the early church came about the 27 books of the New Testament. This is kind of the model. This is the framework that they use in order to determine which ones are in and which ones aren't. And let me also just start off by saying this. The church, and, and by church I mean big C church, church universal. The church never has a right, never has a right to declare something to be scripture. Okay? The church never has a right to declare something to be scripture, but only can recognize what is already scripture. For example, if I was working for the government and they brought me just a bag full of money and in that bag full of money there was real money and there was fake money. I do not have the authority in opening up that bag to pull out a false dollar bill and look at that dollar bill and say, I now declare this dollar bill to be real money. I don't have that authority. I can only recognize by looking at it, studying it, f- figuring out the details of it, whether or not this is fake or whether or not this is real already. Because that's, what, that's the way it's going to fall out. So when you've got letters, when you've got books of the Bible in the New Testament, the early church, um, the way that God led them by way of the Holy Spirit was figuring out which books and letters that were written by the apostles and those near to the apostles, and I'll mention that here in a second, which ones are already God-breathed Scripture and which ones aren't? Which ones are from other false writers or people saying that they are writing Scripture? So the first criteria that they used was, was it written by an apostle or someone close to an apostle? Were the Scriptures written by an apostle or someone close to an apostle? For example, Matthew and John, apostles. Mark and Luke, not apostles, but guys that were close and near to them, able to interview them, able to spend time with them, able to have, go out to lunch and say, hey, did Jesus really do this? Yeah, Jesus really did this. Because they saw it as they were eyewitnesses to it, having the Holy Spirit within them. As John 14, 26 alludes to, Jesus says, when I leave, I'm sending you an helper. That helper is going to be the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's going to guide you in remembering all that I've taught you so that you can record it, so that you can write it down. That's one of the biggest statements for me of believing the New Testament as authoritative scripture because, again, I always land on what Jesus says rather than anybody else saying anything. And if Jesus himself says, I'm going to send a helper to you, two fallible men, two imperfect people who are going to write down scripture, but it's going to be holy and God-breathed scripture, but the helper is going to come and help you do that. He's going to guide you into truth. He's going to guide you into remembering everything that I taught you so that you can record it down. If Jesus is saying that and Jesus never lies, then I can trust it. Absolutely, I can trust it. Because if there were anybody in there who messed it up in the way, then I think God is going to come in and fix it. That God's going to come in and fix the thing that is revealing information about him because if there's anything when God is is sovereign over everything and is in control over everything and wants everyone to view him rightly and the way in which he wants everyone to view him rightly is by reading the word of God that he has provided for them that is testifying to who he is. Don't you think God's going to get it right and make sure that it's right? And then preserve that it's right? Absolutely. Absolutely. So we can trust this, because again, was it written by an apostle or someone close to an apostle who knew Jesus? Does the book agree with other books already written in the Bible? Like, God's not a schizophrenic God. God doesn't just do one thing and then change his mind and the next thing. Like God is consistent. And so when someone comes forth and says, I've written a letter that's inspired by God, okay, let's look at it. Does it agree with this doctrine over here? Does it agree with this doctrine that is in the Old Testament? Does it agree to the character and nature of who God is? Does it agree? God's not schizophrenic in that. He's not giving part of his word over here and then trying to contradict it over here. Do the doctrines line up with one another? Also, They wanted to make sure that the books were historical and geographically accurate. If God does not lie, then everything in the scriptures have to be absolutely true. So, based on, like, I mean, details down into, like, Jesus' birthplace has to be right. Everything has to be true in it. So they would look at that. It wasn't just coming down and saying, yeah, that sounds good. That looks like a great doctrine. That looks like the way in which you should love someone. Or the story of the Samaritan woman at the well. Like, like, well, maybe, yeah, but she wasn't really in Samaria. She was in another place. Well, no, like they're going to get all the details right because the details matter. All details matter. So they have to make sure that everything was historically and geographically accurate because God doesn't lie. Another one, does it have traditional use in the church? You can't just say, you can't just come in and say, Hi, my name's Bill, and I think this book should be in the Bible because I love Plato. Like, Like, does it have traditional use in the church? Has this scripture been used by the church for the existence of the church? So that it protects us from being able to come in and say, yeah, so-and-so wrote this phenomenal book. I think it's, a, it's applicable in every way as we as believers are. And so I think we should just go ahead and add it in there. No, like we don't get to do that. Again, we as the church do not get to declare something to be authoritative scripture. Another one is, does it ring the note of truth in the believer's heart and have wide acceptance among the people of God. Like the sheep hear the Savior's voice. So there's times that as we're growing in our relationship with God, and when we're seeing Scripture, when, when we open up the Word, like for example, I used to read the Bible and this was even before I was involved in in church and before I was saved, I remember reading the Bible because I lived in the South. I felt like it was just something people did because they live in the South. Like you need to know certain stories in scripture. You need to have verses here and there. Like it's just part of culture in the South. But whenever I read the Bible, to me in those times, it was a dead book. There was no life in it. And then I met Jesus, and when I met Jesus and I would read those same stories and I would read those same passages, It felt like the word of God leaped out of the pages and gripped my heart and began just doing surgery on my heart, getting rid of things that were in my own strength, as Josh was sharing in the confession, getting rid of things that that were false ideologies that I believed to be true, getting rid of things that I felt was the right way to live life, just doing surgery on my heart and then repairing my heart and restoring my heart to say, no, 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 this is the way in which you should live that leads to glory to God and also joy for you this is the way in which you should have affections and desires for the right things and not the wrong things and like God's word came alive to me because the Holy Spirit points me to it the difference between the, like, like yes this is a library of 66 books but all it is is a bunch of pages with words on them if I don't have the Holy Spirit in me, this means nothing to me. If I don't have the Holy Spirit, as they said, who is a helper, who is guiding me and revealing truth to me, none of it means anything. Like reading the word of God is just a bunch of sentences. It's a bunch of words, it's a bunch of periods. That's all it is. But the Holy Spirit is the one who brings to life the meaning that is within the scriptures. That's what it truly means to be inerrant. It doesn't mean that the Bible isn't without um, little errors in our English translations of it based on where we put punctuations and where we put commas or or even misspellings or, or different things like that. It doesn't mean that there aren't errors within it like that. I mean, you could probably just spend your whole life going through and just trying to find some of those. Or I could share a resource with you and just save you, uh, save you all that time. But what is inerrant, what is ultimate authority, is the interpretation of the meaning that is within the scriptures. What is God saying to us and why is he saying it to us? And that is what the Holy Spirit illuminates within our hearts and within our minds that leads us into loving and treasuring and knowing Jesus for who he is. For who he is. All right. I know that's a lot of information. Breathe out just a little bit. Um, Where I want to go to now is just a couple of things of the books that we don't include. In the scriptures, the reasons why we leave these things out, and I I group this into um, three, maybe four categories if we get to it, Um, but three categories predominantly are uh, all the books, everything that's not included in the scriptures. Um, Basically, every book that's been written that's not in the Bible now is a good way to start. as far as ones that aren't to be included in this. And so without having to go through every single one of those, again, I grouped them into three different categories. Um, The first one is what's known as the pseudopigrapha. Fancy word, pseudopigrapha. If you don't learn anything else in this sermon, learn pseudopigrapha, talk about it with someone at lunch this week, and then they'll think you're a jerk, okay? Pseudopigrapha. All pseudopigrapha means is just false writing false writing. It's a broad term for any Jewish and Christian books that were written by false writers claiming to be someone who's writing scripture, okay? For example, first Enoch was written, was not written by Enoch. It wasn't written by him. Do y'all remember the movie Noah with Russell Crowe? Anybody see that? I know it's not completely biblical, but it's okay. You can still watch it. Um, y'all remember the giant rock monsters in that movie? Like when you were watching the movie, just as I was watching the movie, I remember thinking rock monsters. Like I don't remember that in Genesis. Um, it's because it wasn't in Genesis. It was it was from the book of First Enoch, and that was kind of where the director was pulling that from. First Enoch's within the Apocrypha. Um, pulling that from the, the first Enoch where God basically damned these angels um, into the earth, and then they now have the opportunity to kind of bring themselves back out by a works-based religion. Um, and so that's why they're helping Noah build the ark. Anyways, that, that one's for free. Um, so there are books that are written by people who are not the ones that actually written them. Uh, we have the Gospels of Mark, uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Why do we not have the other books claiming to be on the same level of the Gospels, like the Gospel of Thomas or the Gospel of Philip? Uh, one thing is to mention is that we can trace the origins of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John back to the original writers themselves in 1st century. When it comes to um, the Gospel of Thomas or even the Gospel of Philip, for example, Gospel of Philip was written in 4th century. Several hundred years after Philip died. So Philip's not the one writing the gospel of Philip. The gospel of Barnabas. Um, you probably didn't even know there was a gospel of Barnabas. Uh, Barnabas was son of encouragement. Uh, just a very encouraging guy. He was a part of the early church. Paul was persecuting the early church. And then Barnabas ends up coming on the same team as Paul. when Paul becomes a believer. And they go and plant churches. And this is the Barnabas. Gospel of Barnabas was written in the 16th century, a little bit time after Barnabas um, lived. Not only that, the only copies that we have of the Gospel of Barnabas are written in Italian and Spanish. Are they Scripture? Let me answer it in Spanish. No, they're not. It's not Scripture. These books were not written by whom they claimed to be written by. Uh, let me pull a verse from the Gospel of Thomas and just see Just for example, for those who are believers and you hear the word of God, it kind of illuminates and just you respond to it as that is God's word. Um, Let me read something from Gospel of Thomas and see if it does the same thing for you because I I trust the scriptures. I trust that they'll do what they do. Here's, And I'm, I'm not supporting Gospel of Thomas. I'm just reading this, all right? Here's what it says. Jesus says, let Mary leave us for women are not worthy of life. Jesus said, I myself may lead her I myself may lead her in order to make her male so that she too may become a living spirit resembling you males for every woman who will make herself male will enter into the kingdom of heaven. (laughs) I mean, does that just resound scripture? Like when you hear that, you're just thinking glory. Like that is just, that is God's goodness right there. How about the infancy gospel of Thomas? So there's not only the Gospel of Thomas, but there's also the infancy Gospel of Thomas that's that's basically devoted to Jesus' boyhood. Um, And so because in our scriptures, we only have basically three different interactions with Jesus. We have the birth of Jesus up into his kind of toddler range. We have Jesus at 12 years old when he goes into the synagogue and just kind of argues with, with the people there. And then we have Jesus when he begins his ministry around the age of 30. Those are kind of the different life stages that we have. And so, Infancy Gospel of Thomas is coming forth and saying, I know a lot of the stories about Jesus when he was a boy. Um, and essentially, it, it kind of views him as like a divine Dennis the Menace. How many of you remember Dennis the Menace like when you were younger? Okay, Some of you. I'm dating myself a little bit. Um, but there's a part where Jesus, Jesus is playing in a puddle. And there's this kid who comes with a stick and starts playing in the puddle with Jesus as well, and it frustrates Jesus, so he then curses the boy who's playing with the stick. The boy then withers up like a fig tree and dies. There's another scene in the Infancy Gospel of Thomas where Jesus is walking along the road. There's a boy who's running down the road, bumps into Jesus like you would in the hallway at a school, bumps into Jesus, Jesus gets frustrated and then strikes the kid dead right on the spot. The parents of the boy then go to Joseph and Mary and are complaining to Mary about Jesus killing their son. Jesus then walks in, gets frustrated with them, and then strikes them blind. Then there's another story in the infancy gospel of thomas where jesus is playing with one of his friends all right so this one's more of a pleasurable scene of of jesus uh where he's playing with one of his friends i think his name was zeno uh zeno falls down some stairs and dies joseph and mary come in and begin accusing jesus of pushing zeno down the stairs and jesus is like i didn't push zeno down the stairs and they say well how do you know you maybe you did push him down the stairs so then jesus raises zeno back to life and asks him did i push you down the stairs and he says no he didn't push me down the stairs like is that scripture no that is in all contradiction to the nature and character of who jesus is yet these people claim that these are scriptures themselves then we have the dead sea scrolls the dead sea scrolls are uh, Jewish religious writings from a sect of Judaism around the first century. So just think, there's the group of Judaism, there's a group of them within them who think this thing's gone awry, it's gone corrupt, and so now we got to kind of go do our own thing. And so they then leave, and they go out to a place, wait for the Dead Sea. They then begin living around the Dead Sea, and they begin writing their own, uh, basically their own new religion based off of Judaism. They now say, what that was corrupt. Now we've got our own thing. And also within that, they're basing it off of a lot of the Old Testament scriptures because that's Judaism is based off of. 1946 rolls around. And when 1946 rolls around, there's this little shepherd boy in what's the area of Qumran. He is in a cave and he's throwing rocks in this cave. And as he's throwing rocks in this cave, it happens to hit this pottery. And when it hits the pottery, it shatters and they find the Dead Sea Scrolls inside of them. What they found in those Dead Sea Scrolls are the ancient writings of this Jewish sect called the Essenes. They found the writings of them that basically were kind of their new religion. And then they also found early manuscripts of some of our Old Testament books of the Bible. For example, they found an entire copy of the book of Isaiah that predates by a thousand years the earliest copy that we had, which is a phenomenal find. But what they did not find was anything new to add to the scriptures. They didn't find any books. like There was nothing in the Dead Sea Scrolls that are themselves authoritative scripture that was not already included in our original Bible. So the best way to think about that right now is if there was a zombie apocalypse that were to come in, And just wipe all of us out. Maybe 5% of our population survives. And then begins repopulating the earth. And in about a thousand years from now, um, somebody just kind of stumbles upon a Lifeway Christian bookstore. And when they go in that Lifeway Christian bookstore, what are they going to find? They're going to find a lot of books that are writings about the way in which we practice Christianity. And then they're also going to find copies of the Bible in which we hold as authoritative scripture. So when you think Dead Sea Scrolls, think the First LifeWay Christian Bookstore. It was just original writings of a group who talked about their religion and then original copies of the Old Testament law in that time. Helpful, but not authoritative scripture for us. Not something to be added to it. And the last thing I want to mention about books that should not be included in this one, uh, depending on your background, you might know somebody Um, with this background as well, is the Apocrypha. This is probably the one that's most debated about in our current day um, and age, and and primarily it's because within the Roman Catholic religion, the Apocrypha is considered to be authoritative scripture. It comes from their Latin Vulgate, which is the official Bible of the Roman Catholic Church. Um, But the issues with that is, um, well, let me just explain what the Apocrypha is. Do you all remember the silence between the Old Testament and New Testament? How long was that silence? 400, 435 years, give or take a couple. So during that time, the Jews were still writing about their history, about their culture, about their religion, and these are now considered the Apocrypha. These are the books that they wrote. However, the Jews themselves never... Refer to the Apocrypha or affirm the Apocrypha as Old Testament scripture. They themselves say that it ceased with the book of Malachi. God's revealed word to us ceases with the book of Malachi. Even though they continued writing about their culture and what, what's going on, was not inspired by God and was not breathed out words of God, is not the word of God coming from Jesus Christ himself, as he is, as John 1 says, the word. So the Apocrypha, even according to the Jews, is not who who they say it is. Do you all remember the guy? So how did the Apocrypha come about? Do you all remember the guy Alexander the Great? All right, some of you maybe. He's the guy who conquered the known world by the age of 32. So just think better than you. Like I don't know what you've done like in your 20s, but like, I don't know that you've conquered the known world. Like You might be working on your corner um, in your neighborhood. I, I don't know. But anyways, just think better than you. Well, he spreaded Greek culture all over the known world so that the language now that was widespread was Greek. And so because of that, the only languages that they had the Old Testament in during that time was Hebrew and Aramaic. And so they wanted the language into the, the common language of the people. And so then um, they, they basically came through and translated it into Greek and what's known as the Septuagint, which is our Old Testament law, uh, Old Testament books written in Greek, translated in Greek. As they were translating those into Greek They also said, well, we want to go ahead and translate the other important historical, geographical writings of the Jews, which were the Apocrypha. So they also included the Apocrypha in that translation. However, prefaced it as this is not authoritative. The Catholic Church then once the Septuagint translated into Latin around 400 and so there's a guy by the name of Jerome, an early church father in 404 A.D., who translates the Septuagint from Greek into Latin, and it's called the Latin Vulgate. And as he's translating it, which includes the New Testament writings, which was already written in Greek because that was the common na- language of the people at the time, he translates all of it. Old Testament, Apocrypha and New Testament Greek, all into Latin. And then, as Jerome is also recording this and doing this for the church, he prefaces that the Apocrypha is not Scripture. The other two are, but this one's not. So at what point did the Roman Catholic Church then declare the Apocrypha to be authoritative Scripture? It wasn't until 1546 that they declared the Apocrypha to be authoritative scripture. The only reason why they declared the Apocrypha to be authoritative scripture is because it was in response to Martin Luther and the Protestant Reformation and Luther's preaching that faith or that um, salvation is by justification through faith alone. So they needed some ammo against him. And the only place that they could find ammo against Martin Luther in Scripture was not in the Old Testament and not in the New Testament because when you do the digging, there is no justification by works in the Old Testament or the New Testament. The only place they could find it is in the Apocrypha, specifically in the book of Tobit. Tobit preaches justification by works, not faith alone. That's where the Catholic Church gets their fuel to push for Justification by works. So they brought it in and said this is authoritative scripture. The reasons why I bring this up is because at the end of the day, this always has to come back to not what man decides, but ultimately what God decides in order to govern his people. In order to govern his people in order for him to reveal himself to us and to love us. The reason why I say this is because if you're a believer in here, we can look at the Old Testament and we can look at the New Testament scriptures and we can say God is good and we can trust it. We can trust it. We can trust it because we know that God, who is in control of all things, is going to come down and say, if there was any errors, if there was any flaws, if there was anything that was not pointing to his glory, God is going to fix it. And so he's been preserving his scripture all along this entire time. I do have a resource that I want to send you this week um, that helps you in reading through the Bible that helps you in being able to understand God's Word for what it is. It's really broken down in three ways, observation, interpretation, and application. How do you read the Scriptures? Observation, looking at the details of it, leads into then what are the Scriptures saying? What's the meaning? What's the original context of the Scriptures? And then from there, we're able to then see how we then apply those scriptures to our lives daily so that the scriptures themselves can govern us to lead us into God's glory and God's joy for our lives. Let's pray. Father, we come to you today and we thank you for your revelation to us. Um, God, we, we are thankful that you are a God who desires to communicate with your children God, you you do not want to be silent. You want to make yourself known to us. God, it pleases you to reveal yourself to us. And God, we know that the primary way in which you do that is through your written word. It's through the word that you breathed out. As 2 Timothy 3.16 says, that your word is, The scriptures are God-breathed. That's more than just inspired, as if we thought it up. It literally comes from your essence. It comes from your character. It comes from your identity. It comes from your creation. And so, Father, my prayer is that we do not look at the word of God as something that is compartmentalized in our life, that we don't look at it as just a a, a, a helpful book for us to grab some advice from throughout the week, but rather that we would look at the word of God greater than the way in which we think about breathing or that we think about food or that we think about water or drink. God, I wish we would... I wish we would live with a hunger and thirst for righteousness and the way in which we see that righteousness, the way in which we understand that righteousness is coming from the content that is within your word. God, I pray that we would be desperate for it every single day. That as Jesus spoke on several times that bread and water are great for the temporal. The the temporary but the word of God is for the eternal like man cannot live on bread alone but the word of God is what we live by God I pray that you would awaken our hearts and awaken our minds that you would grant within our hearts and grant within our affections and our desires a greater longing and a greater hunger and a greater thirst for your word because God, we want to see you. We want to see your son. The more we see your son, the more we treasure your son. The more we treasure your son, the more we're transformed by him. So God, lead us in that. Guide us in your word. Holy Spirit, we know that you are sent to, to do that, to direct us. Holy Spirit, do that. Overwhelm us with affections the inspired word of God, to see you, to see the Son, and to see the Father. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As we partake of... Thank you for listening to a sermon from The District Church. For more information about us, please visit www.thedistrict.church. Additionally, if any of our sermons have brought encouragement to you, would you please let us know by emailing us at info at